0: Before we begin this episode, I just wanted to warn everybody that this episode talks about suicide. If you're in crisis, please dial 988-SUICIDE-AND-CRISIS-LIFELINE. Hey you, thanks for being a valued listener of Remedial Herstory. Please consider subscribing so we can keep bringing you content. I wanted to let you know about a few things we offer beyond the podcast. If you love what we're talking about here, then you are going to love the Remedial History master's classes we have linked in the show notes and on our website. We have three courses, one on pedagogy, U.S. history, and world history, and of course, talking about women in all of those contexts. We also have an annual summer educators retreat, which is in person. Details about that are on our website. Our website is also Packed with learning materials, including articles for every era of U.S. and world history that we built with a collaboration of over 20 historians. We also have lesson plans for elementary, middle, and high school that involve analysis of primary source material and get students doing history. We also have a video series that goes along with that. All of this is only possible because of the generous contributions from our patrons. You can also support Remedial Herstory at remedialherstory.com slash giving, or by becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash remedialherstory. Thanks for helping us make Herstory. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke.
1: Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode?
0: Today, we are headed to China. Oh, okay. We're going to learn about an average woman there. All right. Let's do it. (laughs) Okay. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Remedial
1: Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert,
0: and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Brooke, I'm so excited about this episode. Okay, here's why. <laughs> There's a lot of hand gestures happening right now, people. No, this is going to be awesome. And the reason I'm excited about it is if you go to our website and check out our lesson plans, we have a lot of lesson plans on elite women like Empress Lou, Empress. I don't know why you're using this accent. See, C- oh, Am I doing an accent? I don't know. <laughs> Empress Cece. You know, like we have all these empresses that we talk about and they're great and they're important. And yes, you should teach about them. But we don't have a lot about average women's lives in China. And During like, what time frame? So she takes place <laughs> actually kind of similar to Empress Sisi, who's like, there's like right around the turn of the century, like 1900-ish. Okay. And she lives through the end of imperial China. Okay. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. the the empire kind of declines because of um European and American and Japanese imperialism in the region. There's hand gestures coming towards, towards China. China. <laughs> <laughs> Let's consider China small in this moment. Yeah, no, I mean they're they're being munched apart. And actually if you look at like <laughs> political cartoons of the period, they literally have China being All imagining up in- is math
1: munchers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. So it, it really it ends it ends the empire and it ends the dynasty. And so um Emperor C is one of the last, I think she's second to last emperor of China. And then um there's this like k- kind of warring period where there's all these different warlords and this is paralleling like World War 1, a little after World War 1 ish okay. for people to like kind of orient in time. And then In World War II, there's sort of this conflict between the nationalists who have power and they're trying to establish like a strong China, Mm -hmm. but then the communists are out in the rural areas who are getting like obliterated by the Japanese during that period. And because the communists are actually protecting the people- um, from the Japan or trying to protect the people yeah. from the Japanese, the people actually favor the communists. And so Mao Zedong and the communists sort of rise out of that. And um, that brings us into modern China, you know, this cultural revolution and all those sorts of things. Okay. But so, we have
1: a first account from.
0: So we have an account about the life of this woman It's really, really short. And I'm like really excited for everybody to learn about her because her life spans these three things and she these three periods. And it's just like so, you know, it's such an average woman's experience. And yet through her story, you can see just how much China has changed. And I think that is like really, really powerful. Yeah. It's a great thing to bring into your classroom to show the narrative, too. Yeah. So I'm gonna let our guest introduce herself. My name is Melissa Inoue, and I'm a historian of
1: Chinese history at the University of Auckland.
0: And but you're not in Auckland.
1: I am currently in Salt Lake City, Utah. Okay. Uh, it's a long complicated story, but um <laughs> I still am a professor of Chinese history at the University of Auckland. I also um yeah, it, it's like it's a seriously long complicated story.
0: I love long, complicated stories, but for the sake of time, we will move on. (laughs) So you're going to talk to us about sort of average women's experiences, poor women living in China. And I would love to know more about why you feel this is such an important topic for students to, for teachers to bring into the classroom.
1: Absolutely. So in the first place, Chinese people are one fifth of everyone. So to do any sort of history and not study the history of China is like leaving out this massive section of human history. That's
0: um, mind place... I never thought of it that way, but that's so amazing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right? Um, and then in the second place, a lot of histories of women tend to be super famous women, but most, of, most people, including women, are not super famous. And so how do we get to the reality of what it means to be a human being, what it means to be a woman, if we don't figure out the realities of ordinary people?
0: That's amazing. I feel like the lessons we have so far on Chinese history on available to people sort of fall into that trap of, like you said, super famous, um, very elite women. So I'm very excited to learn more from you about this.
1: Well, a lot of it is based is due to the bias in the sources, right? Because it's the famous people who get recorded. It's the elite people who have learned enough to be able to be educated to write things. So the women we know most about in Chinese history, like let's say in imperial Chinese history, are people from very famous literary families who um, kind of in a form of conspicuous consumption were given educations. Mm. Um, so it was a way that they could show off, like look how rich we are. We can even educate our women. But in the Republican era in the 20th century of China, it's it's a little more tricky to find ordinary women who, uh, and to kind of get a handle on their lives and the realities that were shaping their lives.
0: So, what, given sort of the challenges with access that you are talking about, um, what sources do we have about? And, and ones that teachers could access about women, you know, not not these non-elite women.
1: Well, a major source of sources on um, non-elite women in China in the 20th century are government, government-produced sources. So the government trying to get women to be a certain way. Um, the government trying to get women to jump onto a certain campaign. Um, the government trying to educate women according to its norms. So... Those kinds of sources, of course, have this huge bias because, you know, they're not being produced by the women themselves. They're being produced by the government that wants to shape the women and portray them in a certain way and get them to see themselves in a certain way. But we can still kind of, you know, try to filter through those sources and and see past the bias and see some of the realities of their lives.
0: That makes perfect sense. And and like, it's funny how, you know, just talking about um, these places where... People are absent. And and it's interesting, though, like how data sets and government resources and things like that can actually illuminate a lot about about women's lives, even though we may not have like a direct quote from them that, you know, says, you know, these are the things I was thinking or feeling on a given day. So I think that's a really... Right. Powerful recommendation.
1: It takes a lot of kind of creative reading because often when um, a government body or any sort of authoritative institution says, you know, absolutely do not do this, or no one should ever do this, or no one is doing this, it often means everyone's doing it. That's why this kind of authoritative group says, like, no, don't do it, or no one's doing it, no one should do it. Um, when you see those kinds of things, you usually know that like it's happening a lot. So, so with that kind of creative reading of the source is is kind of um, critical, and then um, besides the government, there are other institutions that were keeping records, and um, so you know there were family genealogies, uh, and many of which survived the Cultural Revolution. There are also kind of more minor institutions, like in this case, religious institutions. So um, it's because that this person that uh, we'll talk about today, um, Deaconess Yang Gen Dao, was a member of the True Jesus Church that we know about her because they did have their own institutional memory. They did have their own records and they had their own reasons for publishing her story. And so, because of that, we have um, her story.
0: Well, can we use this as a launch pad and jump right into her story?
1: Yeah. So um, it's actually really, really basic. Can I just like read it to you? Sure. Because it's really short. It's this very short um, section of a of, of an article so it says deaconess yang Jendao. dao okay sorry And before i read this story there's going to be a couple of points where people are like what um and i'll come back to those and explain what was going on um, but this those kind of what moments are, are can kind of cue us to ways in which their experience and their assumptions um shaping you know women's lives were different for other people so it goes deaconess yang jen dao was orphaned at a young age so she married early Yang was a woman of Xiaogan County in Hubei province. After a short period of time, she was widowed. Soon thereafter, her mother-in-law died. Neighbors criticized her for her mother-in-law's death. Yang attempted to commit suicide by jumping off of a building. Although she did not succeed in killing herself, she was widely admired for having made the attempt. Her good name spread far and wide. The county magistrate had a commemorative Stella erected in her honor. A foreign Christian heard of her and invited her to enter the local Christian hospital training program. She had had some education. After completing her course of studies, she worked as a nurse in a hospital in Hong Kong. One day, her younger brother became very sick. A succession of doctors tried to cure him with no success. She asked members of the nearby True Jesus Church to pray for him, whereupon he immediately recovered and she joined the church. One day, while she was at the True Jesus Church in Wuchang City, a sick person came in seeking healing. No one else was there, so she laid hands upon his head in prayer. The sick person cried out, When you put your hands on my head, why was it like fire? How is it that my whole body burned? This person immediately recovered. After this event, Yang changed her name to True Way, Jin Dao. She decided to give up the work of using medicine to heal people and to concentrate on the work of praying, preaching, and healing through the Holy Spirit. She worked in Wuhan for eight years, then went to Shanxi to plant new congregations of the True Jesus Church. The church was her family and the word of God was her work. Around the age of 50, she took ill and died and was mourned by all who had known her. So that's all that we know about her life from this very short kind of cryptic entry in a uh, kind of commemorative volume of the church, the True Jesus Church. Um, There are a couple of moments in there when people might've been surprised. So for example, why was she widely praised for trying to commit suicide after her mother-in-law died? Um, This is because uh, in Chinese culture, um, a woman's, a wife's kind of primary duty is to serve her mother-in-law. And um, so when her mother-in-law died, Well, first her husband died and then her mother-in-law died. So from that point of view, um, in a kind of pretty draconian way, um, once your husband has died and your mother-in-law has died, there's kind of, I'm putting this in huge air quotes, no point for you to be alive. Close air quotes. Because um, that was supposed to be, you know, in the kind of traditional ideology, that was the point of being a woman was to serve your husband and to serve your mother-in-law. So um, when she tried to commit suicide this kind of fit into this existing paradigm a uh, role for widows to be like well my husband is dead and, and or my mother-in-law is you know is no longer um there for me to serve so there's no point I'm just going to end my life um and so she was praised for adhering to that kind of um, gendered ideology that put um you know men and the man's mother at the center of a woman's existence so
0: hard like my heart sort of like breaks and yet i like i've seen stuff like that across sources and not just in chinese history but you know in india and indonesia and all over so um that's that's really tricky right so the first part of that story
1: that that first part kind of captures one kind of life that she led um In my book, the title of the the story of this chapter is The Three Lives of Deaconess Yang. Um, So that was kind of like her first life in this kind of traditional Chinese paradigm, um, heavily influenced by Confucian ideologies and roles. And then the second phase of her life, she became this new person. She became a nurse, you know, a professional, um, an urban professional in a very large city in China who had a career, who had a salary, who was part of this kind of rising, um, like a Middle class, you know, like a, a class of people who who went to movies or had disposable income, and so it, it shows this kind of um, rising urbanism in China, and and it plugs into this ongoing discourse of the new woman in the 1920s and 1930s. So um, this was also the age of film. So there, in the 1920s and 1930s, be, there came to be all sorts of films in China, especially in Shanghai, which is the center of the film industry, depicting these new women, um, you know, who cut their hair short. And walked around in uh, tight dresses and went out with their friends uh, you know, on weekends and we were totally different roles, t- a total break from this kind of Confucian tradition that had shaped the first part of Yang Jendao's life. And so um that was like the second part of her life. And then the really crazy thing is um she has a third life as um as a preacher and a kind of charismatic healer within this church. And she she walks away from. The paradigm of the new woman, and from the kind of scientific modern framework of a trained nurse in a hospital, and she becomes this faith healer.
0: And um, I love this name that she gets, <laughs> True Way. Like that's so right. cool. She names herself. Right? Yeah,
1: like, which is part of her own self-authorship as well. Um, and and when she names herself is when she enters the third phase of her life. Where she's kind of walked away from the Confucian paradigm. She's walked away from the kind of modern Western influenced paradigm. Uh, and, and now she's in this new, new place uh, with this kind of upstart, independent Christian group uh, that is also walked away from the Western Christian paradigm. And, and so um, in many ways, she's just kind of breaking this new path, but doing what she wants to do and, and kind of choosing her own vocation.
0: That's such an amazing story. And so you feel like this is sort of exemplifies, I I can see how this might exemplify like major shifts for lots of Chinese women across these sort of like three eras. And do you like, do you agree that it's pretty generalizable to the female experience? Well, I mean, obviously most people did not
1: become charismatic preachers (laughs) and, but, but what I love about her story is how it shows the different roles and kind of frameworks and opportunity pathways that were kind of opening and closing to women during this time, depending on where you were and who you were in, in touch with. So, for example, the thing that kind of broke her out of that traditional mold where she was expected to just kill herself because she had no husband and no mother-in-law anymore was that she con- she was in contact with this foreign missionary organization, this kind of international presence within China. Um, Why were the missionaries in China at this time? Why were the missionaries in this treaty port in China in in the Wuhan area? Um, Well, it's because they had won a number of concessions from the Chinese government through, you know, imperialistic pressures. And and so her story intersects with these major geopolitical shifts as well. And because of the influence of the European powers in China, um, they secured protections for foreign missionaries for Christianity. And because of that, there, there was this foreign Christian who was able to kind of connect her to a very powerful local Christian institution, which was the hospital, um, which existed throughout most major Chinese cities. It's just an example of how, you know, China at this time was a place with a lot of international influences. And China at this time was a, a country that wasn't able to kind of maintain its own sovereignty and strict control over its own territory. Um, this treaty poor area of Wuhan, um, within this within the city because of concessions won by the foreigners, foreigners had um, extra legal protections. like they didn't they weren't subject to Chinese laws. They were subject to their own country's laws. So they were kind of immune to, you know the very law of the land. So they had all these crazy um, privileges and, and they were quite wealthy. and so on. So so anyone like, for example, who's teaching about the age of imperialism and how um, the foreign powers were trying to carve up China, you know, could could see Deaconess Young, uh Yang Gendao as a kind of person who was witness to that and whose life was was shaped by those seemingly large and impersonal geopolitical forces. It actually had a direct impact on her life.
0: What sort of sources do you feel people should be looking at to work with to better understand this? I mean, it sounds like what you read is sort of the only thing that we have about her life that we can that we can work with. And is there, are there other women's stories that could be used to corroborate this as like a normal thing for the period or any, any one of these eras that she enters into? Well, in the
1: secondary literature, there are studies of, you know, medical women. So nurses who worked for charity organizations or the Red Cross or um, there's a whole secondary literature on that there's a secondary literature especially in the film uh, overlapping with film studies on the the new woman there's an actual movie called the new woman um, which kind of helped this this film called the new woman helped popularize you know this this terminology and so people could study um this idea of the new woman in Shanghai and, and they could study you know the new woman in film and then in terms of primary sources uh, there aren't I don't think there's many people working directly with a corpus of primary sources. So, but I did um, for my research, I copied a bunch of government textbooks kind of prescribing um, little jingles. Like, you know, like how there's like um, mother goose where there's like little rhymes, which talk about capture scenes from life or something like that. So there are these government textbooks with these little verses um, that talk about things that women and girls are doing which I think would be a good source, I could um, share those with you. Oh, that would be
0: amazing. Well, is there anything that I haven't asked you about related to this that you wanted to share with our audience before we wrapped up?
1: Yeah, I just think that um, it's so easy to, you know, find the famous people and kind of the people who are there, you know, at the signing of this treaty or the people who, um, you know, like Madam. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek, who went and made a speech to the U.S. Congress. You know, it's like really easy to to find those people's stories. And and they're really important. They're remarkable people. But most of us are not those people. And our lives matter, too. And um, so when we can find opportunities to get little windows into the lives of ordinary people, which often happens through kind of lower level institutions, religious institutions, for instance, that's how we can capture Um, these lives. And that's what I think is actually the value of studying organized religious institutions in general, is Mm -hmm. that they are these kind of intermediate level organizations that keep records for their own kind of self-interest, but which give us a lot of insight into ordinary people's lives and expectations.
0: Well, here's to ordinary people. I'm so excited for people to hear this story, learn more about this experience. And it's such a cool example of like transformation, right. And, and shifting from like old worlds to, you know, foreign worlds to like, it's just such a cool, I I love this story. I think it's so powerful and let's make some resources for teachers. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate and
1: review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.